Good afternoon. It's Friday the 4th of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, we've got Alex Thompson, Patrick Henningsen and Vanessa Bailey. So let's get straight on with obviously the news from yesterday uh, of the Bank of England uh, pushing up interest rates to 3%. Uh, this is up from 2.25%. Uh, the Bank of England says that uh, they're unlikely to see interest rates rising above 5% ultimately. We believe that when we see it. Uh, and if this is the highest level already for 14 years, uh, and it's the biggest single increase since 1989. So uh, on top of that, they said that uh, the uh, UK was going to face the largest or the longest recession on record. But here's their monetary, monetary policy report. Uh, and uh, well, 3%, as we can see there. But look, Andrew Bailey was speaking to the BBC yesterday and really wanted to blame Liz Truss for what's going on. So let's have a listen to this. I would say this, I'm afraid, I, you know, I will say this, and I think, you know, it's easier to lose confidence and it takes longer to regain it. And you know, I think the UK's position was affected. Yeah. I was in Washington three weeks ago, I think you were in Washington three weeks ago. Um, it was very apparent to me that the UK's position and the UK's standing had been damaged. And that we have to, we all, and you know, particularly, you know, I and others have to roll our sleeves up and, you know, demonstrate that UK policymaking is back in action, is in action, and we will deal with these issues. So it was all Liz's fault, but don't worry, Andrew Bailey is back in control and nothing to worry about here. This is what they were saying yesterday about inflation, that it's going to increase uh, over the next uh, period, uh, but it's going to do a U-turn very quickly and come straight back down again. Now, if we think back to uh, a year ago, over a year, in fact, I think it was July uh, 2021, Andrew Bailey was saying exactly the same thing. It's important not to overreact to temporarily strong growth and in inflation to ensure that the recovery is not undermined. The post-COVID uh, economic policy recovery is not undermined by premature tightening in monetary conditions. Our forecast at the moment is that we do expect inflation to pick up in the next month or so. But he then went on to say that uh, it was going to do a U-turn uh, because he didn't see that sort of, in a sense, momentum continuing for forward at that pace at all, is what he claimed. But he did say that they would be watching very carefully. But in the meantime, he did nothing. And that was uh, nearly 18 months ago. Uh, then by October uh, last year, Hugh Pill, his colleague, was saying that the magnitude and duration of UK's inflation spike is proving greater than expected, uh, with st still strong demand for durable and intermediate goods, but ongoing tensions in international supply chains owing to transport and production dislocations, goods prices have risen at a global level. He was saying much of this recent rise in UK inflation stems from developments in imported goods prices that uh, uh, reflect these dynamics as well as rises in international commodity prices. Uh, as the pandemic recedes, the level and composition of global demand and supply normalise, these inflationary pressures should, should subside. So this is what we were hearing from them 12 to 18 months ago. Uh, it was all going to go up a little bit, then it was going to come straight back down. Here we are 18 months later, and it's the same narrative. It was all Liz Truss's fault, though, uh, but it's OK because uh, Andrew Billy is back in charge. Alex, uh, I don't know what you think about this, but uh, people don't seem to learn uh, the, the same rhetoric from the same people 18 months later. Uh, are we expected to, to believe a word that comes out of their mouths? No, and it's not just what comes out of their mouths, it's what the journalists say about them. You saw that the BBC interviewer of Mr Bailey was very chummy with him there, that Mr Bailey had travelled in the same gaggle as him and made a gesture towards him, you're on my side, you saw the same as I did, Mr BBC journalist. 
the BBC and not just them, but the whole mainstream media bubble will routinely say that the Bank of England was nationalised at the end of the Second World War as part of a socialist programme by the Labour Party. And yet Mr Bailey and his uh, chums will insist that they, forming the court of the Bank of England, are still fully independent. And it's skipped over that it was another Labour government, not that I'm party political, but it's a fact, uh, which has its first act in 1997 with Gordon Brown at the helm at uh, the Treasury as Chancellor, said, I'm giving the Bank of England back their ability to set interest rates. So that 50-year experiment, even in you know, making a show going through the motions of Whitehall telling the Bank of England, the old lady of Threadneedle Street, what to do, uh, that repatriation to the city was complete a generation ago now, uh, a quarter of a century ago. So it's not just the Bank of England uh, that we shouldn't believe, it's what's said about them. Uh, indeed. Okay, let's move on then to the uh, online safety bill. And uh, well, good news, or is it? Um, because the news today is that the Clause 14, which was all about uh, legal but harmful content, is to be scrapped. Now, this is something that Liz Truss had said she would do. Uh, Rishi Sunak has maintained that position, uh, and it's looking that's uh, like that's the direction of travel. Uh, but actually, is it the direct, that direction of travel? Because, uh, for example, if we look at uh, what people are saying about what the government is going to do, they are going to maintain the protections for journalistic content. And so my question is then, uh, protections from what? Uh, in fact, uh, you know, we already have a censorship, a censorship regime uh, within the social media uh, field sphere, uh, which was, go was going to get some kind of statutory underpinnings as a result of uh, the online safety bill. The removal of the legal but harmful uh, clauses doesn't really do anything to address that. Uh, so that will remain. Uh, and in fact, we start to see uh, <laughs> countries imposing uh, it, this stuff on social media companies, despite uh, the fact that there's no actual legislation in place as yet. So, for example, here is uh, uh, the CEO of Rumble uh, tweeting out a couple of days ago, the French government has demanded that Rumble block Russian news sources. Uh, like Elon Musk, I won't move our goalposts for any foreign government. Uh, Rumble will turn off France entirely. Brackets France isn't material to us. Uh, and we will challenge the legality of its demand. Uh, and so anybody that's trying to watch a Rumble video now from France sees this on screen. Notice the users in France, because of the French government demands to remove creators from our platform, uh, Rumble is currently unavailable in France. We're challenging these government demands and hope to restore access soon. Um, so uh, I'm also hearing, uh, Patrick, that it's the same situation in Germany, uh, not with Rumble, but but uh, in other areas. So. Uh, Governments demanding, despite there being no actual legislative basis for it, uh, that platforms censor. Uh, and uh, so I'm not feeling terribly confident that the removal of the uh, you know, harmful but legal content clauses from the online safety bill will have any material effect. Uh, no, I, I think the effect is going to be uh, their corporations uh, uh, against making the demands really what it's down to. Uh, in the United States, we have a really precarious problem. Um, unfortunately, we might not be able to cover this today, but the, the recent story in The Intercept that was leaked that showed the collusion uh, between the federal government and big tech, uh, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI meeting with executives from Twitter, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Reddit, all of these different uh, companies, on a regular basis, 
uh, to to discuss how to limit speech or what they call dangerous speech. That's the that's the situation in the U.S. is this total convergence of corporate state interests on that. So you know, pure fascism, if you will. Um, in outside of the U.S., uh, there's still, I think, a, a better chance if these corporations, in the long term, uh, can stand up to uh, go- the whims of government. And I think the the issue of Russian media or uh, foreign news sources is a really important battleground uh, because there's a lot of people throughout Europe that would like to have a plurality of media coverage, especially something that's uh, covering the most important issue of the day, uh, which is you know a world war or a major conflict on Europe's borders. They want to see all the information and then educate themselves as to what they think about it rather than have the government tell them in sort of Soviet fashion, have the government tell them which media outlets you're allowed to look at and which media outlets you are not allowed to look at. Isn't that funny how the Iron Curtain has fallen and which side do we find ourselves on in 2022? Uh, Indeed. Uh, But Alex, uh, it's not just platforms that are being uh, censored, it's individuals as well. It's no less a figure than David Icke. And uh, the first, but most of the the first indication that most of the world got to the problem was when his son, who carries a lot of his uh, media content now himself, Gareth Ike, tweeted out that he'd received an email from the Dutch. I think that's because Gareth Ike now monitors the info at David Ike email address where the uh, notification was sent, as we shall see anon. He says, my dad, David Icke, has been banned from entering the EU for two years. As we shall see, it's not just the EU, it's more countries besides. They, the Dutch, claim he is a level three terrorist. Now, the Ikes are careful in what they say. I haven't found this level three terrorist reference, but the rest I will go through from as close to source as I can. Basically, David Icke has been caught up in the crossfire, as far as I can see, of uh, increasingly strident attempts by the Dutch establishment to ban Thierry Baudet's now quite well-known political party, Forum for Democracy. It began when the geopolitics and empire uh, podcast and website, well known to many of us, Hrvoje Moric, a Croat in the United States, uh, broadcasts very regularly on this, and he's a, a colleague of Patrick's on TNT Radio as well. Hrvoje Moric had Baudet on for one of his regular slots with him mid-month, and in the interview that's on screen at the moment, we see uh, that Baudet is talking uh, about thinking our way through the problem of being ruled by globalists and elite and deep state. These terms are used in the write-up by Moric himself. Uh, and that the uh, people who rule us are not very intelligent. That says maybe. How was this uh, geopolitics and empire uh, interview with Baudet written up in Le Monde by a Dutchman who's a special correspondent for this French newspaper, Jean-Pierre Strobantz? Um, he says, in his, well, his, the headline probably wasn't written by Strobantz himself, but it is headlined, Dutch far-right leader claims world is governed by evil reptiles. So that is a quotation taken from the English language interview between David Icke and Hrvoje Moric in Geopolitics and Empire. And then it's uh, we, we, we are hastily told that Icke is due in Amsterdam on the 6th of November. First, it was due to be in the iconic Dumplein, the main square where Remembrance is held, and then later moved to the museum flying right around the Rijksmuseum where there's more grass and it's easier for police to batter people into order, as we've seen recently. So we see already Baudet is being linked with Ike here. And look, uh, the bottom of the article, at least before the paywall uh, comes in, is this. A complaint filed by a citizen was brought by before the commission responsible for monitoring the integrity of members of the House of Representatives, 
as permitted by law. So contrary to the spirit of the Dutch constitution, uh, an individual law has said, well, there's a, an integrity uh, committee, and if you don't like what an MP does outside cut this chamber, he can be stopped from speaking for a week, which is what happened, actually. Uh, and then a, a professor of parliamentary history decided to look into about his finances. For those two reasons together, Bode was banned from speaking in Parliament for a week. Here he is in front of the lectern uh, in Parliament before or, uh, before that ban took effect. And the Dutch equivalent of the BBC, the taxpayer-funded NOS, uh, public broadcaster, was carrying this the very next day. Um, great concerns in among uh, Bode's parliamentary colleagues about what was going on. And here it's already found its way into Dutch. And in the second line, you can see that uh, evil reptiles has become has been translated literally, which I wouldn't do professionally translating, but fair enough. But aardige reptielen. So uh, people are getting a bit uh, frightened by that. And then there are quotes in this piece about MP saying we should pray for Bode because he's lost his mind. Then in the middle of that, they've embedded Bode's uh, repost by Twitter, which is that he used the equivalent, if you tap that again, the equivalent of... Um, Sorry, this is the next day, actually. NOS uh, suddenly quit, fit, switched its attention to David Icke. Uh, headline, can the Netherlands deal with or hold off the man behind Baudet's reptiles theory? And if you tap that again, you will see that they are good enough, although they're quite deceitful people at NOS. They were decent enough to show that Baudet had drawn attention in that ring there to the second and figurative meaning of the Dutch noun reptile, that it doesn't just mean a scaly animal, that it also means uh, a, a ghastly person, uh, narling in Dutch. Okay, so Bode didn't get, wasn't left alone with that because um, what then happened was in the middle of this piece, NOS, the Dutch BBC, went to find a professor of Jewish studies who, I think speaking on behalf of political special interests personally, uh, this professor Vallet, spelt W-A-L-L-E-T, said, Bode uh, can't get away with this, I'm paraphrasing, because if he'd really only meant to say nasty people ruin the world, run, run the world when he was talking to Hrvoje Moric, he shouldn't have used reptiles, because when you say reptiles, you conjure up Ike, and when you conjure up Ike, you conjure up anti-Semitism. This will all become relevant in the letter that now goes on screen, because davidike.com has now carried the original Dutch letter in a PDF by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, IND, and an English translation, which is accurate and wooden. It's not a problem with the translation. The letter itself is pretty awfully written. Here it is. You can see that they're specifying through the uh, database of people that they've got, uh, his date of birth. I don't know whether they have his passport number, but I'll go through this, these extracts as quickly as I can for, for lack of time, right? What's in uh, italics here are quotations from a police report given to the Dutch Immigration Service, the people who hit the button to ban him from the Schengen zone by putting him on the Schengen watch list SIS2. And here, the police in the Amsterdam area are quoting, you can see the English there, I hope to see you on the 6th of November, misspelt, never mind, digital or live. So that's the police saying, ah, uh -uh, he might be coming. Then the police say, in this italic quoted bit in the, in the letter saying you're, you're not coming to Europe for two years, the police say, in the middle of this bit that you can now see, critics claim that the reptiles he's talking about are a metaphor for a partly Jewish elite. And he, Ike, claims that the Jews financed Hitler. This is a reference to the 1934 agreement that um, also uh, got Ken Livingston into trouble, right? So I think that's slander already to say that Ike says the Jews finance Hitler. I've never heard him say anything like that. I'm not closely associated with him, but there you go. Tap this again and then you'll see a couple more extracts. Um, this is still the police, right? They're drawing on NOS and they're drawing on AD, Algemeen Dachblatt. They're drawing on the mainstream press rather than looking at Ike. 
They're saying news reports call Ike the man behind Baudet's reptiles theory. News reports say that Baudet uh, was very naughty when, as we showed on UK Column recently, uh, he talked to, um, uh, he, he responded to the King's speech by saying that one of the ministers, Sigrid Kach, uh, had been trained at a spy college in Oxford. And this is uh, the police quoting this in the middle of this, saying, Baudet is very naughty and is dividing society. Final slide of detail on this, and I, I think it's worth going into detail because of the effects that are quite extraordinary. The conference that was going to have Mr. Ike uh, address them um, is mentioned, Salmon for Nederland, so vaguely supporters of Mr. Baudet. Um, and that's when they get this quotation, I hope to see you on the 6th of November. Uh, the next extract shows what the police are doing with all this. This is still police, right? This isn't the immigration service that hit the button to send the letter. Um, oh, we've gone fishing for a renter quote, say the police, and we found a random Turk in a Dutch podcast saying, I would like to, to kill Bike, right? So that's it. That, that's the, They've ticked the box for uh, you would divide society dangerously by turning up in person, Mr. Ike. And later on, they say, just as was said to David Scott, by the way, if you really want to exercise freedom of expression, you can still go online just as they told David uh, Scott during lockdown, right? So here's the uh, non-italic text. This is the immigration service now. So it has been seen or has found, very vague phrase in Dutch, gebleken is, but this is the extent of their research. It's, it's turned out that you are, have been known for years as a spreader of complot theory, of, of, of um, um, uh, conspiracy theories. And critics, this is repeating without comment what the police said, critics say that when you say reptiles, you mean Jews. Uh -huh. So one more on this page. Um, this is the boilerplate text that they hit a button to include at the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Conspiracy theories, anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial are very dangerous for the rule of law and democracy. Uh, let us explain to you, little child, why that is. Uh, because you can't uh, incite people to hatred. And there's further bits I haven't put on screen that say you can't say MPs are bad people because that would undermine trust in them and, and make life bad for them. And you can't say um, we're, ruined, we're ruled by people who have no humanity because then you're inciting people to attack policemen without human feeling. OK, so then they go on to say there is thus reason to believe that the expression of your thoughts could incite more violence against politicians if they're no longer seen or because they're no longer seen as people. Blah, blah, uh, defending democracy. Uh, so the police uh, in Amsterdam have given you enough, uh, us, enough reason to say you can't come to the Dutch society because you could cause community discohesion and uh, public order problems. Um, there we are, uh, finally near the end. So we've, we've taken into account that you do have a right to come and express yourself, but this is European human rights again. Um, it's the only game in town in Dutch law. Uh, that is outweighed by the interest in public order. Uh, and then further boilerplate stuff about um, uh, the European uh, Convention on Human Rights. You've got a right to family life, but it's not absolute and you don't have relatives in the Netherlands, so forget it. And then a reference to uh, administrative law. Uh, which is the only way to challenge this. You can uh, uh, complain to the immigration service. If they say we stand by our decision, it can go to a judge. And that's the only, and even if it gets to that stage, just because I've studied Dutch administrative law, uh, the judge will not say you have a right to express yourself or, or you were in the right, you never said anything wrong. The judge will only ever say um, the, the service made the right balance of, of, uh, of in competing rights and interests. It's signed by Mr. Nobody, right? As if the litter had written itself. Yours sincerely, the junior minister for justice and security uh, uh, through the personage of, and then you get the civil servant, that's a standard in most countries, the civil servant writes on behalf of the minister. 
And then in italics we get, and I get letters from the Dutch taxmen all the time that say the same thing. This letter was produced in an automated process, and that's why it's not signed. And underneath, a senior officer, as if you know nobody had hit the button and nobody had made the decision. Um, the effect of this is, in order, to, the, the result is that they didn't want Ike addressing a square a people in Amsterdam, the Dampline, on one day. But because it's press button time and everything's automated, the only thing they can do, or at least the standard route, is get him out of the Schengen zone for two years. So instead of not being allowed into Amsterdam for one day, this is the result. All the countries in blue uh, will not let Ike in for the next two years, including non-EU countries such as Norway, Iceland and Switzerland. Right? That is a process, I would say, at the very least, this has just run wild. I know this section's gone on long enough and people will be astonished at this, but this is just the process of administrative law uh, and security agreements at Schengen level. Uh, and nobody has you know, owned up to what's going on here. Okay, well, thank you for that, Alex. Uh, so, uh, Vanessa, if we move on then to Australia and anti-Semitism again, but this time uh, slightly better news. <laughs> yeah, this is the case uh, that has been running since 2019 uh, between Professor Tim Anderson uh, and his union uh, versus the University of Sydney. Uh, Tim's uh, website is the Centre for Counter-Hegemonic uh, Studies. Um, if we go forward, <clears throat> we can see um, this was uh, the offending item. Tim does these sort of infographics, and it is quite difficult to read at the bottom. Um, but effectively, what he did in his class was to equate what the Israeli state and, and the Zionist Haganah forces did to the Palestinians from pre-Nakba, pre-1948 onwards, um, could be equated to what the Nazis had done to uh, the Jews, an interesting discussion. And effectively, the university um, fired him on the basis of anti-Semitism. Tim then decided to take them to court. There you see the offending um, part of the, the infographic showing uh, the Israeli flag combined with uh, the Nazi swastika. As I say, people can freeze the screen um, and read the smaller print. He was effectively comparing the media coverage uh, uh, from the Palestinian perspective and the Zionist perspective or the Israeli perspective um, during the Israeli aggression in 2014 against Gaza. Um, <clears throat> so I'll have to come forward here. Um, so the, basically what happened um, following the final bench decision of the Australian Federal Court, uh, Tom Fowley has found on every count for the, uh, uh, for national, the national, thank you. It's the National Education Tertiary Education Union. Union, yes. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Tim Anderson in their case against the University of Sydney. In 2019, as I explained, uh, he was dismissed from his position at the university on the grounds of serious misconduct over public comments. The federal court has found all of these comments were uh, protected under the university's enterprise agreement, and the university managers had not proven a breach of standards in any one of them. This included the Gaza graphic prepared for an academic module, reading controversy, and which examined um, amongst other things, large-scale racial massacres of Palestinians by the Israeli army. 
part of the image compared Israeli conduct to that of Nazi Germany. So effectively, I mean, this is very interesting because we've seen a spate of um, academics, well, academics, Jeremy Corbyn, politicians, MPs, anyone that, that kind of points out um, the Israeli conduct towards Palestinians, whether it's in occupied territories or in Gaza, they are effectively immediately smacked with the anti-Semitic clause. Um, now, what I would recommend people do is to go back. This was a documentary made by Al Jazeera. Um, I think it was 2015. It, it, I don't approve of Al Jazeera, of course, Qatari-run media that poured billions into effectively uh, paving the way for the regime change war against uh, Syria. So I do have reservations about Al Jazeera as a channel itself. But however, this uh, three-part documentary was very good. Um, it was an undercover investigation into how the Israeli lobby, Friends of Israel in the UK, target, demonize, criminalize, smear, discredit anyone that is going against the Israeli dominant narrative, which of course is very much protected um, by the BBC. Um, so this is part one, there's part two and part three. And I've included a clip um, from part three, which is entitled an anti-Semitic trope. And I've included um, a short segment of that video just to give people an idea. But just quickly, Mike, before you play the video, because this ties into what Alex was talking about, um, basically, in this video, there's a conversation between a newcomer to the Labour Party who's questioning the chairperson at the time of the Friends of, uh, Friends of Israel Labour um, about how they are going to ensure the, the, the two-state solution, how they are going to achieve this with the fact that they've atomized um, the the... Palestinian or the remaining Palestinian territories inside uh, the occupied territories. And the, if you watch the video, you will see an extraordinary conversation going on in which finally the chairperson, whose name escapes me right now, basically turns around and says, not only are you anti-Semitic, you're a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not talking to you anymore. So that was the extent um, to which the actual question was answered. But anyway, if we play the clip, it'll give you an idea um, of this particular part of the documentary. The reason we should fight BDS is because it's wrong. It's a moral outrage. It's an operation run by the secretive Ministry of Strategic Affairs. They recruit mainly former intelligence officers. Its main task is to counter BDS worldwide. Using an undercover reporter, Al Jazeera's investigative unit exposes Israel's clandestine activities in London, a city that's become a major battleground. BDS campaign in many ways germinated in Britain. You'll meet the people working to challenge BDS at every level of British politics. Ah, uh, oh, okay, let's see what you're doing. We work really closely together, but like, a lot of it's behind the scenes. One of Israel's main targets is the Labour Party. For the first time, its leader is a champion of Palestinian civil rights. They'd be very happy to see Jeremy Corbyn no longer leader of the Labour Party, for sure. It's a covert action that penetrates the heart of Britain's democracy. Can I give you some happy that you take down? It is outrageous interference in British politics. It shouldn't be 
permitted. It's a battle of ideas seeking to change not only how Israel is portrayed, but even how it is debated. It's anti-Semitic. I mean, it's extraordinary the extent to which the um, Israeli lobby has infiltrated and influenced not only British government and parliament, but also, obviously, um, British uh, state-affiliated media. I, I do recommend watching the three parts of the documentary. Yeah, okay, th thanks for that, Vanessa. And Patrick, it's not just uh, Britain either, uh, but uh, some uh, similar topics from the United States here. Incredible story. I mean, anybody who's who's been following uh, this story has many people have been shocked by the depth and the sort of scope of this particular incident in the U.S. Even by normal uh, standards. So the uh, NBA uh, and the Brooklyn Nets uh, have basically censured uh, one of their top stars. His name is Kyrie Irving. That name might sound familiar because he's also one of the only NBA players who refused to get vaccinated uh, and sat out, lost half his salary, et cetera, uh, over the last two years uh, because he refused to get the jab. So he's back in the uh, spotlight again, and he has been canceled in grand fashion. And so the franchise has suspended him indefinitely because he posted something on Twitter uh, that was deemed to be anti-Semitic. And uh, his biggest sin probably is he did not uh, uh, do his act of contrition uh, properly. And so here's the owner of the uh, Brooklyn Nets. His name is Joe Tsai or Joe Tsai, depending on how you want to pronounce that. He's saying, I'm disappointed that Kyrie appears to support a film based on a book full of anti-Semitic disinformation. Here's that word, that keyword, disinformation. Uh, I want to sit down and make sure he understands that this is hurtful to all of us, and as a man of faith, it is wrong to promote hate-based uh, or, or hate based on race, ethnicity, or religion. I'll show you what the offending article is uh, in a minute, uh, but you know, let's take a look at this. So the Nets have suspended him five games without pay. That's about the equivalent of $2 million, uh, if you want to break that down. Uh, so that's quite a lot of money, even for, for a star. So Irving... Uh, would say that uh, only that he meant no harm. Uh, he said that some things uh, in the film, the documentary film, Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, were untrue, but he didn't say he shouldn't have posted the link um, to it on Twitter. And so that's what caused the row. And uh, Kyrie Irving in his defense saying, uh, I'm not the only one, or I'm not the one who made the documentary. So he's saying he's just posting the information Apparently was not good enough, and he goes on to say, I, I cannot be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. Now, that's the key uh, point in all this, is that uh, Kyrie Irving and uh, many other uh, African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans as well uh, follow this movement. Now, here's the film itself. You can rent it on Amazon Prime. It's probably uh, climbing up the charts right now uh, in terms of popularity, but there it is. Uh, Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, you can rent it for eleven ninety nine. I'm not plugging the film. I'm just saying it's widely available. And this is basic. This is based on the book uh, by uh, Ronald Dalton Jr., Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up 
Black America. Again, that's available on most bookseller sites. But because Kyrie Irving shared it, um, he has been canceled uh, effectively. And with the full weight of uh, an organization like the ADL here, and the timing of this is interesting. After this broke, then all of a sudden you had this report come out by the FBI. Irving's reluctance to apologize came hours before the FBI said it had received credimation about a broad threat to synagogues in New Jersey, Irving's home state. What a coincidence. Nonetheless, we move on. So Josiah is also the executive chair of Alibaba Group, and he's also under great pressure uh, in the United States, and uh, you can see these types of stories uh, about him. He's financially supported China's, quote, cultural genocide of the Uyghur Muslims. So you have to understand that's a real dog whistle issue, the whole Uyghur issue in the United States. So he's been associated with this. So it, it seems to be this executive has to go over the top uh, to show that he's really concerned about these sensitive issues. And so this thing has appeared, reared its head, and he's jumped on it and taken a very strong stance here. Uh, and so Irving tried to basically resolve this uh, by giving a half a million dollar donation uh, to, I believe, it was a Jewish organization or the ADL, um, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, who's the new head of the ABL, the heir apparent to Abe Foxman, he basically rejected it. Said, we don't want your money. You're an anti-Semite. You haven't shown that you have apologized, and we don't accept your apology, etc. It's not sincere enough. That's the argument. So the ADL has made pressure on this friend, Brooklyn Nets, and the CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, the answer to do you have anti-Semitic beliefs. This is what was put to Kyrie Irving. Um, always no without equivocation. We took Kyrie Irving at his word when he said he took responsibility, but today he did not make good on that promise. Kyrie clearly has a lot of work to do. So there was a press conference. Kyrie Irving didn't say that the press asked him, uh, do you have any anti-Semitic beliefs? And Kyrie Irving refused to answer that question. It's a bit of a loaded question. It's a bit like, how often do you beat your wife? Uh, but that, so it's a, this is a struggle session. Essentially, this is where the conversation is at. It's a national struggle session with a high-profile uh, athlete, world-famous athlete, multimillionaire, major figure in the African-American community and culture, and he's being put in front of the ADL, uh, in front of corporate America and the mainstream media, uh, in this struggle session where they want him to disavow any potential uh, anti-Semitic beliefs that he might have. So Kyrie Irving's been caught in the undertow of the Kanye West uh, meltdown and controversy, uh, more or less along the same lines. Very, very much related in terms of the content. Here's Greenblatt, ADL head. We are glad the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, uh, will meet with Kyrie and demand an unqualified apology. Uh, Silver's statement echoes the very issues we plan to address with Kyrie, uh, but they are even more urgent in light of Kyrie's statement today. So the, the ADL is basically reasserting itself as the sort of chief cancellation organization in America, really showing their power to lobby uh, corporations and big, big organizations, even with high-stakes uh, uh, results in terms of, you know, this is a valuable player. Imagine Ronaldo 
or in the British equivalent, a major football star being sidelined, being canceled because of a, a post on Twitter that could be construed as anti-Semitic or, or racist or anything else. So uh, Kyrie was forced to genuflect, and eventually, I think this was last night, uh, taking this screenshot from his Instagram account, and this is this long-winded uh, apology, basically saying he's sorry uh, that he might have uh, posted this, and it be, uh, it, you know, he's been uh, labeled as anti-Semitic. He doesn't believe he's anti-Semitic, um, but he is a believer in this uh, idea of. I, I think he's a believer in this idea, like Kanye West, that uh, the African Americans or Africans are the lost tribe of Israel, one of the lost tribes of Israel. So this is a deeply held belief by many African Americans and Afro-Caribbeans. You can see them on the street corners in London. They've been preaching for decades uh, in America. If you go to any major cities, you could say this is kind of uh, tangential in a sense to the nation of Islam in that it's very specific to um, African American and Afro-Caribbean uh, communities uh, in, in the UK. Uh, in Europe and in the United States and Canada. So, but we're told from this controversy, this is all of a sudden this explosion, this anti-Semitic explosion here that's come out of the story, uh, when in fact this has been a lot around for a very long time, this belief that Africans are uh, a lost tribe of Israel. And so, you know, you, you can criticize this and call it anti-Semitic, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of different religious sects, and this is my personal feeling on this. There's a lot of different religious groups, movements, and sects that have very, very different ideas, and some of them might be considered wildly outlandish. Um, and the Mormons are criticized uh, on this front. And there's many other uh, branches of Christianity and churches that you know, have ideas that might not correspond in some people's estimation to you know, science or things like that. But we still have freedom of religion, at least we, I thought we did, uh, in the West, um, but so this issue kind of challenges that uh, a little bit. So you can see they're trying to create this as a kind of anti-Semitic uh, conversation. But what it is is there's Kyrie Irving here is being his his First Amendment right clearly is being uh, pressed upon uh, by a whole gaggle of forces here, and so you know it's. It, it doesn't, uh, this doesn't allay any concerns of, of a conspiracy. If you consider what Kanye West uh, is, has said uh, before he was canceled by his bank, by his talent agency, by his corporate uh, sponsor or partner, et cetera, et cetera, his record label, everything, everything that he said there was a conspiracy about, he's been canceled on all of those fronts. So it, it sort of validates his uh, his conspiracy theory, uh, as it were. Yeah. So this, this is just an incredible story. And this has come at a time when, you know, this lobby is really fighting for relevance. You know, the ADL used to really rule the roost in Washington as, as did IPAC. But right now the most powerful lobby, political lobby in Washington now is not IPAC. It's the U Ukrainian expatriate, uh, lobby who's really lobbying hard. And you can see they're getting results. The money that's flowing to Ukraine, um, it dwarfs the sort of military aid that we used to say was legion uh, from the United States to Israel on an annual basis. Ukraine has accrued uh, probably 10 or 15 years worth of 
Israeli military aid in terms of money totals. So, you know, that whole foreign lobby discussion in America has transformed completely uh, in the last year. So this is, on many levels, this is a very interesting, uh, but also a very concerning story. Yeah, okay, thank you, Patrick. Okay, uh, now if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, or uh, options to help us there, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Um, the gift vouchers, Christmas gift vouchers are back on sale if you would like to buy somebody uh, a UK Column membership for Christmas, that would be much appreciated. Uh, please do share our uh, material on the various platforms as well. Um, and Alex, uh, we have a notification of event taking place on the 28th of November. Just as with the interview of Fran Adamson, that's just on the homepage of the UK column at the moment with Debbie Evans interviewing her. So we see the same here. And so we flag this up to viewers that if they go via the spectators website, uh, all the show notes within a few hours of uploading this to find the link. It's a live event. Obviously, anyone planning to attend should be uh, as polite and uh, as law-abiding as a as a squeaky clean thing. Um, but it's bringing together health and care leaders to examine the priorities of the NHS, modernization and innovation. And look how the, uh, the, 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 the uh, paragraph takes its turn. How the UK's standing as a global life sciences superpower could benefit not only the NHS, but the economy in general. This is a confirmation of everything Debbie Evans writes in her weekly blogs that are at the bottom of the homepage. And just in response to Patrick and Vanessa, it's uh, slipped to my mind to say in the Long David Icke segment that there's yet another parallel there in that the Dutch equivalent of the CRIF in France or the APAC and the ADL in the United States, named the CIDI, was mentioned a couple of times in the Dutch or the Amsterdam police uh, copy that went to the immigration service when they hit the button to ban Ike from Schengen for two years. Uh, and what was mentioned there was that there was such a thing as a Jewish police network for Amsterdam, which had said, we're going to have trouble from counter demonstrators. So this isn't made up. This is this is how the um, uh, the, the lobby operates. Yeah, uh, Vanessa. Uh, you're muted. Sorry. Uh, no, I wanted to also say what, what ties into particularly what um, Patrick mentioned about Israel. Interesting that Netanyahu is um, heading the polls for the uh, leadership battle in Israel again and is uh, claiming he will supply arms to Ukraine. So, again, an interesting sort of uh, everything's happening at the same time. But also Alex Kriff in France was pretty much replaced by the Jewish European Parliament which, of course, was established with Ukrainian money. Uh, it was a Ukrainian billionaire behind that. So another interesting connection um, there, which we haven't got time to go into, but just to point that out. OK, thank you. Right. Uh, now, Patrick, uh, in the United States, uh, The Atlantic has published uh, a pretty controversial article called Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. Yeah, this is kind of an op-ed by Emily Oster. And as soon as this thing uh, surfaced, the backlash has just been immense right across all sort of social media platforms. And then it's made it into the mainstream media. And so basically the argument here is she's saying, well, we didn't know anything back then. And she's asking that those who uh, opposed lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports should give amnesty um, to their oppressors. <laughs> um, and so here she's saying this small section here, but it's 
this is a very important article because it does speak to the mindset right now of what's going on politically on this issue after the fact. Given the amount of uncertainty, she says, uh, almost every position was taken on every topic, and on every topic, someone was eventually proved right, and someone was eventually proved wrong. In some instances, the right, pe the right people were right for the wrong reasons. Interesting. Uh, and in other instances, they had a, a prescient understanding of uh, the available information. So there's a lot of word salad in here, but basically she's saying, please, you know, leave us alone. Um, we got it wrong, uh, but, you know, you need to give us all amnesty um, for all, all the sort of strident positions that we took attacking uh, anti-lockdown people, calling them names, uh, trying to exclude them from society, getting them fired from their job, refusing them health care, and all the rest of it. Just look at here's Morgan's Twitter feed uh, during 2021. You get an idea of what this type of a person looks like who now wants amnesty. They want it, everything to be forgiven, all forgotten, and uh, let's just move on. Uh, and the backlash from people, I mean, it could put uh, all sorts of Twitter responses up here, but you can go and look for it for yourself, COVID amnesty, just do a search on Twitter. You can see the reactions on this. People are hell no, uh, there's going to be no amnesty. You should be held to account uh, for what you've done to society, to people, the bullying, um, using the uh, instruments of government and authority and mainstream media to attack, to cancel, to crush, to deplatform people uh, for merely, uh, you know, exerting their own personal rights, their health sovereignty, bodily autonomy, etc. So, yeah, it, it, this has really raised the conversation. It's interesting this came out right before the midterm elections, but it really shows you where people are at on this issue right now. The the side who was really pushing all of these COVID measures and kind of took to authoritarianism with a strange zeal uh, during 2020 and forward, they're really worried right now uh, because the facts are coming out and it's not pretty. And so they really can't hide from their previous positions. And so many people said some crazy over-the-top things and went after, really went after people in, in, in mass. And now that the facts have come, uh, it's... It, there is really nowhere to hide on this. I think they have to answer to what they've done, the positions they've taken, and the harm that's been caused um, by this human experiment. Uh, Vanessa, do you think uh, an amnesty is deserved? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, we, they gaslighted people for two years, apart from all of the hideous consequences that Patrick mentioned and others. Um, effectively, this was completely a victim-abuser relationship and an abuser asking for forgiveness after they've beaten up their partner or beaten up uh, their victim is, is absolutely disgusting. What that does is basically say, but it's all right for me to do it again then. You know, that's the pattern that we're seeing here. Um, and absolutely no, the gaslighter, the abuser, should be held to account and they should never be allowed to be in this position of power again. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, now, Patrick, uh, let's come on to the midterms then. Uh, what's the latest? Oh, the latest is uh, the big days coming up uh, on November 8th and it's coming quick um, as well. So that'll be early next week. And this, th this election is uh, turned into an absolute circus 
as many predicted it would. So the 2020 midterms are in full flight right now. And so let's just look a quick snapshot here, real clear politics. This is where you go for polling averages, in terms of the latest polling averages. And obviously that's looking at all different polls, taking into account their partisan polls, uh, the samples, different types of sampling methodology. Real clear politics is averaging a lot of the main polls. So it's as close as, in my opinion, as you're going to get to whatever you can glean from polls. You can find it here. And right now, this thing has swung massively in just a week. We spoke last week. It was pretty much a dead heat. On the Senate, you can see a slight edge here by Republicans just looking at the national map here, um, the big map. Oh, oh we, we moved on to the next slide. Okay. But the previous map, you can see of the United States, uh, the red states there, those are more or less trending in Republican. The blue states, Democrat. The uh, gray states, those are what they call toss-ups. So these will be statistical ties within the margin of error. There's a lot of important races here. Let's just take a look at that list. Um, these are the that have moved recently here. Pennsylvania, uh, the Dr. Oz versus John Fetterman. This is garnering much of the national media attention here. Uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona, he still uh, has a, a very small lead, although closing with the Republican Blake Masters, the millennial Republican candidate. Lake Masters. Uh, Nevada, that seems to have flipped uh, in the favor of the Republicans. Georgia, in the Herschel Walker, who we spoke about last Friday, uh, in the favor of the Republicans. These are all really important seats um, when it's this close. So one or two of these could determine the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. And that means when, you know, we have things like impeachment hearings uh, that we'll talk about that in a second, and also investigations into a lot of different potential things like big tech censorship, but who knows what the Republicans would do with that power if they get it. Could they score some kind of more investigation? Uh, the FBI, which has become a kind of politicized, um, the bouncer for the party, uh, as it were. So let's just look at this again. So these are the issues, basically, that are governing uh, this election. So these are the main campaign issues. For the Democrats, Really what they're running on is this. Let's take a look. January 6th and Donald Trump. That, so that is still the, the, the most, uh, the, the main theme at the top of the Democratic slate is really January 6th, uh, threats to democracy, etc. Uh, abortion. So the overturning of Roe v. Wade, back to the states, they're running on this. You know, is, is there traction on that? I'll show you in a minute. So they're coming for our democracy or your democracy. This is the battle cry for Democrats. If you don't vote for us, um, you're going to lose your democracy. Pretty much that's across the board, uh, most states and nationally as well. And they're coming for your Social Security and your Medicare. So this is kind of a repeated talking point. You, the Democrats normally campaign on this every election and say Republicans are coming for your Social Security and your Medicare. They want to get rid of all your of benefits and entitlements, fixed income, and so forth. But that talking point is basically, for the last 20 or 30 years, it's been the norm. So it's kind of run out of its fullness uh, recently. For the Republicans, they're running on Joe Biden's record, the economy and inflation, energy policy, these, the border, you know, the open border policy, the Biden administration, and indoctrination in schools of children. So that's under the sort of banner of the culture wars. So look at those two slates of issues there. 
and you can see which one is more relevant to voters, and that seems to be reflected um, in the polls and the trends that we're seeing. So the Democrats don't have much to run on other than fear and Trump, so they're still stuck in that undertow of Donald Trump. Here's Joe Biden. Biden warns democracy is under attack as midterms enter the final stretch. And so here's a video. This is Joe Biden giving a stump speech here. And uh, I'll let you judge what you think about this. Um, we might briefly comment on afterwards, but here he is. You know, American democracy is under attack because the defeated former president of the United States refuses to accept the results of the 2020 election. He refuses to accept the will of the people. He refuses to accept the fact that he lost. He has abused his power and put the loyalty to himself before loyalty to the Constitution. And he's made a big lie, an article of faith in the MAGA Republican Party. The extreme MAGA element of the Republican Party, which is a minority of that party, as I said earlier, is trying to succeed where they failed in 2020, to suppress the right of voters and subvert the electoral system itself. It's estimated that there are more than 300 election deniers on the ballot all across America this year. We can't ignore the impact this is having on our country. It's damaging, it's corrosive, and it's destructive. And I want to be very clear, this is not about me. <laughs> but it is about him. Uh, so you can see how they're trying to divide the Republican Party into Republicans and extreme MAGAs. So the Biden White House has been trying to do this, to perform this surgery, to separate these Siamese twins, as it were. They've been trying to do this for months. And it's actually the opposite kind of a unification of the Republican Party in the run-up to this election, uh, because really the reality is the votes are there with Donald Trump. And much to the uh, chagrin of the Mitt Romneys of the world, the Liz Cheneys of the world, what they call the rhinos, Republican in name only, uh, they can't uh, basically ignore these electoral trends. If people are they're running on those issues that I've just showed you, and those are not MAGA issues, those are American issues. Uh, so this is why things are trending in that direction. So the, the Democrats have spent upwards of $100 million backing MAGA candidates in the primaries because they thought they would be easier to beat in the general election. So, you know, I mean, they talk about democracy being under threat. I mean, but there's, the Democratic Party are backing those candidates cynically uh, in the early stages of all these state elections to basically hoping... Uh, wagering that they're going to not appeal to centrist voters, and the whole thing has backfired. It's 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 epic, really, if you think about it. But then, it, so they're saying democracy is under threat, and there's voter suppression. But here, look at this: Axios early voter turnout for 2022 midterms on pace to meet record-setting 2018 midterms. So you can't have it both ways. They're saying democracy is under threat. There's voter suppression, but then at the same time their record-breaking turnout. So this argument really isn't just not flying at all. Uh, so Barack Obama has been drafted to do a whistle-stop tour. This is how bad things are for the Democrats. They sent him down here to Arizona, and he got a kind of a frosty reception from a lot of residents here. 
but yet, you know, at the echo chamber of his campaign um, events there for Mark Kelly and uh, the governor uh, candidate Katie Hobbs, obviously a warm uh, and exciting reception, supposedly anyway. But he's saying, again, democracy may not survive if Arizona election deniers win. So he's calling uh, Kerry Lake, the governor candidate who's now in the lead, who's broken uh, in some polls an 11 point lead over the Democrat that used to be over uh, ahead of her by the same margin back in the summer. So she's broken this lead wide open. And Obama's come down here at the last minute saying, if she's elected, uh, democracy may not survive. It's unbelievable if you think about it. So uh, here's uh, a Carrie Lake. I believe we have uh, Carrie Lake or Obama. I'm not sure what the next clip is on, on your carousel, Mike. It's Carrie Lake is first. But I was a little concerned today, I'm going to be honest, when I saw Hillary Clinton bad-mouthing me. <laughs> and she, lo she looked angry and actually scared and, and uh, just uh, completely unrelated. I want you to know, just in case you're wondering, I'm in perfect health, my brakes on my car are in good shape, and I'm not suicidal. And we're going to win this thing on Tuesday. <laughs> So she's she's taking the she's taking it right to her uh, opponent there, um, and so they've drafted Hillary to come out as well, and again tried to scare voters to say that all of these Trump-inspired or Trump-endorsed candidates are basically it means the end of democracy. So here's Obama, and you know this is an ex-president. Former U.S. presidents do not go onto the campaign trail and aggressively campaign and hit the pavement hard, especially in midterms, and in the kind of community organizer sense. So you can see Obama has not matured at all uh, to really from where he was as a community organizer. This is what he was saying in Arizona just two days ago. Look at this. It's not enough, by the way, to elect Democrats like Katie Hobbs and Mark Kelly at the top of the ticket. We've got to elect good people up and down the ballot. And Arizona, let's be honest with each other for a second. I know folks out there, including Republicans, may be thinking there's no way somebody like that's actually going to get elected. I, you, you may think that's too extreme for Arizona, but we've seen I, folks can win if we don't do our part. And if you've got election deniers serving as your governor, as your senator, as your secretary of state, as your attorney general, then democracy as we know it may not survive in Arizona. That's not an exaggeration. That is a fact. <laughs> I, I really don't know what to say after watching that, but you know, you can get, so you can get an idea of the level of, of desperation. And I, I, th I think it, you know, that what he's doing on the campaign trail is really below where he should be in terms of maintaining his status as a former U.S. president. But that's all out the window now in the post-Trump um, era. So you can see that's the community organizer, Obama, whipping up the crowds with fear. And it, it, it's not reflected in the polling in Arizona. The voters clearly are not with Barack Obama on that issue. Uh, so she's losing badly, uh, the Democrat Katie Hobbs in the gubernatorial race to, to an election denier, uh, Carrie Lake, a supposed election denier. So look at this. So here's the real, the proof is in the pudding on the numbers here. 
So new poll, voters expect Republicans to impeach Obama. And when you dig into this, this is the interesting part. A CNN poll shows Republican voters are much more enthusiastic than their Democratic counterparts in this election cycle by a substantial margin, 38 to 24. They're far more excited about which party will they'll support in their congressional districts and also in the Senate races. So where's this enthusiasm coming from? That's the question here. And look at this. You only have to go to websites like CNN to see how stressed out the, uh, the Democratic establishment is. And CNN is basically calling it now more realistically uh, in the final days, um, probably to rescue their credibility a little bit. But look at this, five scary numbers. And this is what you need to understand about the current environment in the United States politically. And this is what is going to decide elections ultimately here. 42% polled say that Joe Biden's, that's his job approval rating, while 17% of likely voters strongly approve of the job Biden is doing. So that's not good news. 61% say that Biden hasn't paid enough attention to the most important problems facing the country, i.e. the economy, inflation, U.S. energy policy, etc. So that's not good. And 51% say the economy is the key issue. So the Democrats aren't, don't want to talk about the economy. They're not running on the economy. But yet 51% of Americans say that is the key issue that's going to determine their vote. And only 15% say abortion is moving the dial on their vote. So the Democrats have put abortion up as their number one issue in many cases on many campaigns. So it's just not there. It's not resonating with voters. So 28% say things are going very or fairly well in the country. Not good. That's not a good number. 75%, three quarters of likely voters say the economy is in the midst of a recession, a protracted recession. So that's just the death knell really there of, I think, the, the, the Biden uh, campaign. And look at this, you know, these issues, we read the tea leaves months ago and just doing some research previously. This is from April. Uh, this is PBS. Independents favor the GOP. So that the independent vote is what's going to swing the election here. And look at the, on all of these major inflation, crime, the economy, gun policy, national security. You'll see on independence the red uh, the the red bar. That's Republican. Uh, Republicans are are stronger on those issues. That's right across the board. So it's it's amazing that the Democrats have chosen the talking points and the issues or non-issues that they have uh, for this midterm. And that's it's amazing. This is the first election I've seen where the platforms it's so polarized right across all Democratic campaigns on the state level are basically running a national issue slate. Same on the Republicans. Everybody seems to be on message with their party. Um, it's pretty incredible, even on governor's races. So here's, now here's the problem. Uh, as we said last week, they've already foreshadowed that there's going to be problems counting the votes. In Pennsylvania, we show, I believe we showed you that story last week. So the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania said, oh, too many mail-in ballots we're going to have trouble. We might not be able to call the election on the day. This is like a deja vu rerun of the 2020 election. So all the chaos that ensued because of that. Um, and then all the censorship online of people questioning election results and YouTube, uh, Twitter, Facebook, censoring anybody and calling them now officially an election denier. They're not allowed to challenge whatever the, uh, the, the top result is 
at the White House, state, or mainstream media level. So here's Biden basically, again, reiterating this foreshadowing that there's going to be problems counting the votes. Unbelievable. Watch this. And for the first time, this is the first time since the national election of 2020, once again, we're seeing record turnout all over the country. And that's good. We want Americans to vote. We want every American's voice to be heard. Now we have to move the process forward. We know that more and more ballots are cast in early voting or by mail in America. We know that many states don't start counting those ballots until after the polls close on November 8th. That means in some cases, we won't know the winner of the election for a few days until after, a few days after the election. It takes time to count all legitimate ballots in a legal and orderly manner. So somehow, from, from the year 2020, first world advanced modern democracy, the United States of America is suddenly unable to count votes and call elections on the day. It's, it's incredible. Nobody can explain why this is happening, but yet this is what's happening once again. We hope not, but it looks like that's going to happen. And there's going to be a massive amount of unrest uh, politically that could spill onto the streets. Um, who knows where it will go? But this was never a problem before the year 2020. And so it's, and it's not just because of the massive mail-in ballots. It's because they've changed the rules and allowing people to mail in and to arrive late and things like this. And this is all from that sort of all the changes made because of COVID uh, in 2020. So, and it, again, who does this generally favor? Well, in 2020, it absolutely favored the Democrats. And so, again, you had all these accusations of um, election fraud or problems with the vote counting, inconsistencies and so forth. So those issues are going to come back on all these key swing states. You've seen how close all these races are. So Joe Biden does not really have, he does not exude confidence. You can see he's frail, he's weak. Um, and so that, that really represents, I think, where the Democratic leadership are. Nobody wants to criticize or challenge Joe Biden in the party, but quietly, uh, there's a lot of op-eds being written right now. It's time to dump Biden and Harris. Uh, George Will penned an op-ed in the Washington Post, very influential columnist there, uh, ostensibly a centrist. Uh, they're liberal. Um, he's saying that. So if they lose the House and Senate, they will lose the House. If they lose the Senate, there will be calls. Oh, Biden will be thrown under the bus 100% and Kamala Harris as well. And that will be unprecedented in U.S. history that you, they would change the president midstream. Um, because I just, it would be the ultimate, like, not see how Biden could hang on for more than a few months. Uh, without a massive uproar, knowing how crazy the left and the Democratic Party have become hysterical in recent years, um, they will turn on their own in the most vicious way, I think, if the Republicans take the Senate as well. So they're just going to say there's no point in having this president in, and they'll do anything by hook or crook to get rid of him, literally anything. So use your imagination there. So here's the big takeaway this week. Donald Trump has announced... He's basically thrown these heavy hints out that he's going to run. Watch this. The election was rigged and stolen, and now our country is being destroyed. I ran twice. I won twice. 
and did much better the second time than I did the first, getting millions more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016, and likewise, getting more votes than any sitting president in the history of our country by far. And now, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Very, very, very probably. Very, very, very probably. Okay, so so Patrick, that's uh, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, Donald Trump is going to be running again. That made the front page of the uh, BBC uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, <laughs> we will see. We will see what happens. Now, look, let's uh, let's move on quickly uh, to um, well, Ukraine and Vanessa. What's uh, going on with uh, well? We've got a new model for uh, losses on the Ukrainian side. Yeah, this was actually shared. I just came across it today. It was shared by the Telegram channel Donbass Insider, which obviously is related to um, <clears throat> the Donbass uh, forces very much. Um, it's a neutral website. It, it claims to be neutral. And effectively, it's translated from the Russian, so the English is not perfect. But so starting from May, I won't go into all the details. Basically, they started tracing... Um, they have more than 125,000 records. They have, as you can see on the left, a search box for people to put in a request to find relatives that are potentially missing in action, killed in action, captured, and so on. Um, people can go to the website, wartears.org. It, it seems to be very well put together. I've taken an example of their various graphs. First of all, um, the uh, armed forces of Ukraine, soldiers killed in action to date on the 3rd of uh, November, 106,223. If we look at the graph below that, the overall AFU numbers, including active, killed and captured soldiers. So I've basically broken it down based on the graphs that are available at the website. Active in the AFU, now that as far as I understand from the website, that also includes the kind of the ADAR, um, the various uh, Nazi or um, ultra-nationalist battalions, etc. So it's not only the official army, the official military, although, of course, those battalions have been um, absorbed into the uh, official military. <clears throat> so active in the AFU, uh, 367,384. Now bear in mind that Russia has um, committed fairly small numbers of troops initially um, in February for the special military operation, but we know that 300,000 um, reservists, so formerly uh, had been in the army or had had military training, are heading um, to the front line. So that gives an indication of the parity now between the Russian forces um, and the Ukrainian forces. And of course, not all the Ukrainian forces are at the Donbass uh, front lines. Killed and captured, so the combination of killed and captured, uh, 130,687. Now, I just did a very quick exercise of trying to find out um, if mainstream media, particularly the BBC or CNN or, or any of the mainstream media outlets, 
were keeping a tally of the Ukrainian forces' losses? And the simple answer, no, the simple answer is no, not really. And I just picked one at random. Um, and I, I just wanted to point out the language here. The first line basically says the armed forces of Ukraine have killed at least 1,500 Russian soldiers in the war over the weekend. Now, I can't remember. This was dated. Uh, I haven't actually included the date there. Um, but I just wanted to point out that the way that this is worded, not that the Russian forces had losses of X, but the, the armed forces of Ukraine have killed. So there's a very definite bias towards uh, the Ukrainian forces. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised by that. But what I wanted to point out is how this fits into um, the 10 points of war propaganda that were established by a Belgian historian, Anne Morelli, in 2001, known as the 10 Commandments of Propaganda. Um, if we go immediately to uh, number seven, we suffer few losses. The enemy's losses are considerable. That obviously fits into um, the, the point that I was just making. But I'll just very quickly run through them. Number one, we don't want war. We are only defending ourselves. Two, our adversary is solely responsible for this war. Is this sounding very familiar already? Three, our adversary's leader is inherently evil and resembles the devil. Four, we are defending a noble cause, not our own interests. Five, the enemy is purposefully committing atrocities. If we are making mistakes, then this happens without intention. Six, the enemy makes use of illegal weapons. Remember uh, the chemical weapon um, events in Syria designed to criminalize the Syrian government. Seven, as I said, we suffer few losses. The enemy's losses are considerable. Eight, recognized intellectual and artists support our cause. The celebrity cult uh, war fetishism comes under that bracket. Nine, and of course, remember all of the celebrities that have visited Zelensky in Kiev. Nine, our cause is sacred. Ten, whoever uh, whoever casts, I think that's meant to be, doubt on our propaganda helps the enemy and is a traitor. And we're seeing that happening right now, of course. Uh, yes, indeed. OK, thank you for that. Now, let's uh, move on to uh, the issue of <laughs> Russia's allegations against the UK. And here, first of all, from her Telegram channel is uh, Maria Zakharova. Uh, let's do a, do a quick translation of this. Uh, so this is on uh, the 1st of November. She said, to be honest, I don't care. Who got this information or how it was obtained? I'm interested in London's answer to the following question. Did British Prime Minister Liz Truss send a message to US Secretary of State Antony Blinken immediately after the Nord Stream gas pipeline was blown up with the words, it's done or it's over with? Uh, an official answer to this question is expected by millions of people around the world who have the right to know what happened uh, to world energy security and what the role of the Anglo-Saxons uh, is in the terrorist attack. Uh, so, Alex, that was a couple of days ago. Uh, we've obviously been covering over the last couple of days, uh, the last couple of news programs, the allegations of uh, hacks of mobile phones and so on. Uh, and the fact that Russia is now openly saying that the United Kingdom in particular is behind a lot of what is going on uh, against Russia in the Ukraine at the moment. Um, so yesterday, then, they invited, shall we say, in inverted commas, uh, the British ambassador. Uh, to come visit them in Moscow? 
Yes, Deborah Bromet was invited to the foreign ministry in Moscow yesterday uh, for a démarche, uh, the diplomatic term for uh, a strong protest, but which isn't handed over with a, a title saying Russia protest, but is, re is read out as a, a verbal message uh, because the next stage is an ultimatum and then persona non grata. So it's pretty stiff stuff. Uh, first of all, I decided to see what the British gutter press, um, in, in this uh, case, the form of the Express, was making of it. Look at the adjective and adverb soup here. Ukraine. Pre Putin threatens UK with extraordinary, unpredictable and dangerous response. Vladimir Putin has launched an extraordinary threat against the UK after bizarrely accusing it of being involved in a humiliating Russian defeat in the Black Sea. The UK's ambassador to Russia was summoned by Moscow to answer for unfounded allegations that Britain was involved. Um, nothing on there except that at the bottom they have probably because the journalists now are too junior to know not to strip this out. They have included the fact that it was a démarche. I hadn't seen this when David Scott asked me yesterday evening to make one of my segments uh, the detail of uh, what the Russians had said uh, to Deborah Bronat. I thought I was going to have to do some translating from the Russian, as Vanessa and you have been doing. So the next slide was really just a placeholder because Ria Novosti, uh, the uh, more or less official news agency together with TASS in Russia, was covering this in some detail and what's on screen in Russian, believe me, is simply just the Express's coverage of the same thing. But no need, because the Russians are so dastardly that they actually do this. And this is something that uh, we can learn from excellent Russia watchers to do more often. Joseph Farrell in the States, um, Alexander Mercuris at the Durant always say, go and read the Ministry of Foreign Affairs' readouts of calls, particularly the Russians, because they are, as I say, dastardly enough to give the full text of what they've uh, read out, which Britain hardly ever does. So here in fluent English, by the Russians' own translation service in-house in the foreign ministry, is the whole text of what uh, the British ambassador was told. And by the way, she had people at the door greeting her with banners saying Britain is a terrorist state. Mm -hmm. uh, so in connection with the Russian Defence Ministry's reports about the United Kingdom's involvement in the October 29th terrorist attack against the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol, British ambassador to Russia Deborah Bronat was summoned to the Russian foreign ministry on November the 3rd. Everything that follows is described by the boilerplate people at the Express as extraordinary, unfounded and outlandish. A strong protest in connection with the British military specialists' active participation and training in training and providing supplies to the units of the Ukrainian Special Operations Forces, including with the goal of conducting acts of sabotage at sea, were expressed to the ambassador. Concrete facts of that kind of activities by London were provided, so obviously that doesn't go in the démarche. The démarche emphasised, or rather it doesn't go in the press release about the démarche. The démarche emphasised, say the Russians, that such confrontational actions by the British pose the threat of an escalation and can lead to unpredictable and dangerous consequences. It was pointed out that such hostile provocations were unacceptable and a demand was put forward to stop them immediately. Should these acts of aggression that are fraught with direct implication in the conflict continue, the responsibility for their harmful consequences and the mounting tension in relations between our countries will lie entirely with the British side. And by the way, the RAI Novosti coverage of this event has further down the page a link to another uh, relevant article, which is simply entitled Britain is seeking or Britain is building its casus belli, its cause for war with Russia. So the Demarche uh, readout continues. It was noted in particular that an agreement was reached in September 2020 between London and Kiev to expand the British instructors' training programme for U Ukrainian military divers. In late 2020, the parties began implementing the Naval Training Initiative for the Ukrainian Navy, which included training courses for combat swimmers. 
British-Ukrainian naval cooperation is further reinforced under the Joint Multinational Training Group Ukraine program. There's a whole paragraph I won't read out giving units details about that. Uh, cities where this training of underwater uh, frogmen has, has taken place. The Russians continue with the participation of British specialists. The Ukrainian Navy carried out dives and a training detonation of a target on the coast and in the Black Sea near three cities, Odessa, Nikolaev and Machakov. In August to September, on Pierwomaisky Island in the Dnieper estuary, three kilometers south of Ochakov, British military instructors, about 15 men, so I presume they're uh, going on an observation by the Russian forces, taught servicemen from the armed forces of Ukraine to operate unmanned underwater underwater vehicles designed to destroy ships. In August, September, also the British trained the crews of minesweepers that were uh, transferred to Ukraine. We have information, the Russians finished, that the British Navy has also transferred a certain number of UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, to Ukraine. Of course, there's no substance to anything the Russians say, you understand. Uh, If you just read The Express or any similar title or the BBC, you'll just get the falsely and the unfoundedly and the the favourite adverbs. Uh, To complete this segment, Global Village Space, and the writer in question, Slavisha Batko Milacic, is a young historian from uh, Serbia and Montenegro. He studied in Montenegro, but I think he's a Serb, has written this. This is part of uh, a piece which has has the overall headline, how NATO planned a preemptive strike on Russia. He hasn't given sources. It's a single source claim. So uh, take it with a pinch of salt, even if it does seem sincerely written. Uh, But this is about a 2021 exercise with the French carrier strike fleet, the Charles de Gaulle being the centerpiece of it, which of course uh, was agreed to be shared with Britain at some point, as we've covered in the past. But it was allegedly a French Navy-led exercise around Corsica in 2021, about a year ago, late autumn, just over a year. Now, uh, unnamed journalists, Milacic hasn't given us his sources here, says uh, unnamed journalists came into possession of data related to the Polaris exercise, that exercise off Corsica. And I won't read it all out, but it's about the fact that, as usual with these exercises, it's reds and blues, the usual um, uh, fictionalised scenario with the combined armed operations, in this case, Navy and Air Force, but there's also Navy and Army sometimes, or Air Force and Army. But it's claimed that the papers that were handed out to the participants said um, that the uh, in response to the alleged Russian intervention, the forces of the NATO coalition would form and send an aircraft carrier strike group led by the Charles de Gaulle aircraft carrier to the combat area in order to, quote, stop the invasion and preserve the sovereignty of Ukraine. Now, that was over a year ago. And I noticed in Vanessa's segment, uh, the, 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 the dateline that she couldn't quite read, it seems to have been the 30th of October that the International Business Times carried that piece about uh, Russian losses. It was also striking that she mentioned Arthur Ponsonby uh, as writing this cynical, many a true word spoken in irony kind of uh, description of the difference between our aims and the, and the dastardly enemy's aims, because it was also Arthur Ponsonby as junior uh, minister at the Foreign Office, who on April Fool's Day, 1924, stood up and told Parliament that from now on Her Majesty's Government uh, would assume that if the Parliament didn't complain within 20 days, uh, a treaty would be considered ratified. Uh, so, you know, if you don't grumble, the, the usual UK column uh, sign-off line, qui tacit considere videtur, he, he was silent, is, is, is regarded as consenting. Yes. Okay, and uh, I just want to move on quickly to uh, this from UN News. Uh, UN still sees no sign of biological weapons in Ukraine. They claim the United Nations is not aware of any biological weapons program in Ukraine. A senior official uh, in the Office of Disarmament Affairs reiterated on Thursday in a briefing of the Security Council. And this is from uh, a little while ago. Why am I mentioning it now? Well, uh, on Wednesday, the UN Security Council 
did not. Uh, they voted against uh, a, a Russian effort uh, to establish a UN commission to examine the evidence that Russia had gathered from uh, about uh, US-run biological labs in Ukraine. Um, and uh, nonetheless, uh, despite the fact that they lost the vote, uh, of course, the British had lots to say about it. Uh, so Barbara Woodford, Woodward said this, the UK voted against this resolution in order to protect the integrity of the Biological and to Toxin Weapons Convention and avoided being undermined by unfounded accus accusations. Russia's allegations of US and Ukrainian biological activities were given a full hearing in September under Article 5 of the Convention. At that meeting, Ukraine and the USA provided a comprehensive response to Russia's allegations. Uh, Russia's long-standing disinformation efforts undermine peaceful biological cooperation under Article 10, a vitally important aspect of the Convention. We must defend peaceful biological cooperation against unfounded malicious allegations. So that was the British position. Uh, the Russians, uh, this is Dmitry Polyansky, uh, saying it's uh, now obvious that Western states are simply afraid that a commission may be created to look into the materials submitted by the Russian Federation and conduct a relevant investigation as envisaged by the BTWC. Under the elaboration process of this draft resolution, uh, Western states demonstrated in every possible way that they placed themselves above the law and were not going to implement this provision. Um, so um, absolutely unwilling uh, on the Western side uh, to have any kind of investigation into the uh, biolabs that uh, were in Ukraine uh, and have subsequently fallen into Russian hands. The Russians uh, have gathered quite a bit of evidence for that. Just for the record, China voted for the resolution with uh, Russia. The United States, Britain and France opposed it and 10 other countries uh, didn't vote or abstained. And then finally on this uh, from me, uh, the UK has decided to, to implement a ban on shipping Russia, on UK uh, shipping Russian oil. Uh, so Jeremy Hunt saying, we continue to stand by Ukraine in the face of Putin's a barbaric and illegal evasion. We've banned the import of Russian oil into the UK and are making good progress on phasing it out completely. So they're putting this ban in place so that UK ships uh, and services can't be involved in um, shifting Russian oil uh, after the 5th of December 2022. And this, of course, uh, uh, the UK government is saying paves the way uh, to the price cap that they're intending to try to impose on seaborne uh, Russian crude oil. Uh, Hunt went on to say the new measure continues to turn the screws on Putin's war machine, making it even tougher for him, for, for him to profiteer from his illegal war. Yeah, same uh, usual rhetoric. And then, Vanessa, just to end, uh, what's going on in Russia with respect to immigration? Yeah, well, I just found, again, I found this really interesting. I saw it yesterday, and of course, when I was in Russia, um, they were talking to me then for the in regards to the uh, international observers if they were um, if life was really made unbearable for them because they had participated in the independent observance of the referenda uh, in the various areas of Donbass, then uh, they would be fast tracked uh, to asylum in Russia. So I already had an inkling that Russia was preparing to open its doors. But here it's quite fascinating. Here, Russia set to unilaterally ease visa procedure for foreigners, the Kremlin. The government should develop and present proposals on introducing a visa-free regime for foreigners traveling to Russia for tourist, business, or educational purposes, as well as those participating in sports or cultural events. 
Um, all measures should be introduced regardless of the principle of reciprocity. A document published by the Kremlin said the uh, decision was taken following a meeting, blah, blah, blah. The order also suggested increasing the validity period of multi-entry visas as well as easing the regulations in the field of tourism and the border checks of Russian tourist vessels. So an extraordinary sort of opening up of, of um, borders and entry into Russia uh, during a time of war. What do we see in contrast, of course, I'll, I'll go through, I mean, I'm not going to go through it all, but basically you have Suella Braverman, of course, declaring that refugees who cross the channel in dinghies will be banned from claiming asylum in the UK, so they will not be heard. Even uh, there are concerns that the government is quietly walking back its house a Ukrainian refugee policy, um, which of course was was very much at the forefront of their policy um, at the, the start of the Russian uh, special military operation. So quite, I, I just find it quite extraordinary, Russia's, let's say, openness to foreigners coming to Russia compared to the West basically shutting down on asylum and entry into their countries. Yeah, okay, thank you. Well, thank you for that. Thank you to uh, uh, Alex and Patrick as well. We're absolutely out of time, so we've got to leave it there for today. Um, we will be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra on the main live stream, but otherwise uh, we'll see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. I hope everyone has a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.